Ladies and gentlemen, what a podcast we have for you this week. This week, we talk about so much, including Safan Hassan's world record in the women's mile, Nigel Amos getting back into the 141 territory, the Ethiopian 10,000 meter trials go on as we record the podcast. And of course, as always, we talk about the Bowman Track Club men being injured and Alberto Salazar. Before we get to that, please promote our sponsors, which is the Let's Run.com shoe site. Go to Let'sRun.com slash shoes. You'll see over 1,000 shoe reviews. You guys, have, the response has been amazing. But if you haven't had time to review the shoes that you're in, please do so now. And while you're there, you can check out the cheapest shoe, the best shoe for an overpronator, pronator, a marathoner, etc. Check it out right now. Let's run.com slash shoes. On last week's podcast. And then we're going to run the women's mile, John. And I, I see that your notes are, you're asking, could the women's mile world record go down? We got Gonzebe Dababa. Safan Hassan, both are injured. Now, the women's were recognized 4-12-56 from yeah. <clears throat> a Russian. How? Why are you even asking this? To me, 4-12, take away 20 seconds, is 3-52. No, we're not going to see a 3-52. And all by herself, Safan Hassan chasing down history here in Monaco. Watch the clock. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special victory lap edition of the Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast. Taking victory laps for a few reasons. One, Safan Hassan has broken the world record in the mile, 4.12.33 in Monaco last week. England have won the World Cup of cricket in a super over against New Zealand. I'm sure we'll talk a lot about that. Okay, maybe not. And most importantly, I get to take a victory lap over Robert, who very clearly misprognosticated the mile world record in Monaco. Robert, what do you have to say for yourself? I'm not really sure what to say, John. That's rare to find myself speechless, but um, I, I don't really want to reveal the behind the scenes things, folks. But, you know, if you go to the Apple podcast review page, you'll see some of the five-star reviews. Thank you for the fans for giving us the five-star reviews. They're coming through at a very high clip. But, you know, the most recent review I see on there, best running news pass podcast out there. I listened to several, and this is easily the most informative. I really enjoy the banter between Robert and Jonathan. Please keep it going. So, folks, so, so, you know, as the producer and owner of the show, John, sometimes I have to say things that necessarily I don't believe in. Weldon tells me what to say just to keep the banter on. Do you think that Kornheiser and Wilbon and PTR are actually disagreeing? That's all produced, staged. Of course, I predicted someone would run 209 and then 202 in a freaking mile. No, of course not. John, yes, you're right. But, I mean... Thanks. That's all I was looking for, Robert. That, that's all I wanted. But what I'd like to do is let's bring in Alberto Salazar into the podcast right away. We have to have our weekly quota. I want to congratulate Alberto on doing yet again a little asterisk world record, folks. I mean, he's got... He, uh, the knock on Mo Farah is he never ran fast. And he did get an indoor two-mile world record, I think, is the only world record he has, John. Is that correct? That's right. And now Salazar has coached a guy to an indoor mile world record, which is inferior to the indoor 1,500-meter world record. And now this women's world record, yes, very impressive. But if you convert it to the 1,500, we're only looking at the sixth or seventh fastest all time. So please get back to me when Al Sal's crew does something even more crazy, runs like 210, 155, and gets an outright world record. All right. Well, Robert, I will – counter with this then Sifan Hassan her last two races she's run 818 for 3000 meters and 412 for the mile which she came through 1500 in around 355 it converts to about a 353 I want you to tell me how many names ahead of her on the all-time list at both of those distances do you think achieved those times without the aid of performance enhancing drugs because I think there is an argument to be made you could say Sifan Hassan is the clean world record holder at both those distances Assuming she's clean, yes. Uh, that is assuming she's clean, of course. But I think you're undermining her accomplishments here. Oh, it's very impressive. And, I mean, all the, the, the women's running right now is just going to a, a new level. I mean, look at, I mean, the, there was people pretty close to her. I mean, it, you know, Laura Whiteman, 417, Gabrielle Separate Divorce. I mean, a lot of people. I mean, you guys remember it wasn't how long ago Morgan Euseni was number one in the world at four flat. 
you know, we have, we've got eight women in this race. I mean, including an Irish woman, Sierra Magian, or however you say that, 419. I mean, there's so many women under four flat. Women's running is really at a new level. And one thing, John, I think you and I were talking off air about this. It's interesting to me about women's running is the mile women are still like when you compare it to men, I don't know if it's percentage basis, but just like if, if you look at it in terms of take a man that could run a 1411, which is the world record. So many of them could run under 410 in the mile. Almost anyone that could run 1411, right? in the men's 5,000 would easily break a 410 mile, but the women don't run as fast at the mile. It's, it's kind of strange to me. I'd like to see the physiology of it. And I wonder if that has something to do with sort of why the XY women are so good at the 800 and the mile. I'll reach out to John Kellogg. Maybe next week we'll have an update on that. But let's talk about uh, enough where I look bad, John. Can we talk about something else in the meet or get Weldon in on the show? Um, I was correct about there being no women's world record in the 1500. Thank you very much. Men's world record. Correct. Yeah, not exactly a... Uh difficult stance to take that someone's not going to run 325 but you took it you were brave enough to take it timothy chariot getting the win there in just under 330 interesting race though because this has some implications he got passed uh fairly late in the race i mean he did come back to win but at, at the bell it was still close with him and inga brixen and you your takeaway was sort of was this a game plan for inga brixen or anyone else to follow to try to beat Chariot at Worlds, but you could also say Chariot employed the game plan to prevail at Worlds because he ultimately did pull away in the end of the race. Yeah, I, I thought it was a really brilliant strategy after the fact. I mean, it doesn't sound like it was intentional. He said he wanted to run fast, and you know, he, he ran relatively fast, but not super fast. Um, but I, I thought this, to me, if I was a Kenyan and I'm used to just running these Diamond League races, I would be nervous as heck when I showed up at Worlds, haven't done a tactical race. I didn't grow up with the NCA system and then all the money in the world, all, all the pressure and you got to run a tactical race would really scare me. So I think this is what he should do at worlds. You take it out hard. If nobody comes with you, you try to time trial it. Even that though is scary, but then you back off a little bit on the third lap and you, know, you make it an honest race, basically relax a little bit on the third lap and then blow them away at the end. And I think that's a smarter strategy than trying to do like, what Alan Webb did that one year at Worlds where you just blow it out, what, at 800 meters? I, I don't think that's smart. He needs to have a an honest race. And I, I think if it's an honest race, no one's beating him. And, we, you know, we had some other highlights. Ajay Wilson got a win in 157. That was a non-Diamond League event. We had Sufyan El-Bakali got another win. Let me jump in here. And there was a guy who ran, Nigel Amos, ran 141 in the 800. I was going to ask you, Weldon Johnson, the third member of our podcast, what stood out to you from Monaco outside of the world record? Well, I've almost been iced from my own podcast for 10 minutes. Getting back into civilization, I've been up in upstate New York, visiting the in-laws. I passed by Steve Soprano, employee 1.1, town of Queensbury, New York. Holy sh shit, guys. That's like the end of civilization. Once you go north of Queensbury, it's just like pine trees and there's barely any stores. It's like 1970 all over again. But... Yes, back in civilization. First of all, can we go back to the 1500 real quick? You guys are calling this a tactical race. He won it in 329. So are we now at the point where 329 is a tactical race? That's not what we called it. We didn't call it tactical. He employed tactics. It doesn't make it like, I guess every race has some version of tactics, right? But I wouldn't call it a tactical race. Do you think Chariot's going to run 329 without rabbits? At Worlds, it's st still different without rabbits. I don't think he will, but I think if anyone could, he he could. Okay, I just thought it was sort of, it was an interesting race, right? I mean, I, I'm, Jacob Ingebrigtsen's getting closer and closer to him, and I guess he's not getting closer and closer to 330 because he was closer the week before, but he's they're both, you know, he's right at that level. And to see him challenge Chariot and take the lead with a lap to go, I thought was very interesting. Before you beat someone, you got to think it in your mind that you can do it. And this kid's 18 years old, and it's clearly in his mind that he can be the best in the world. So he's halfway home on that front. And with Worlds two months away, that's going to be very interesting. Um, so turning turning beyond the 1500, the Amos 800 was just tremendous. And at I thought it was sort of fitting the last guy to go sub 142 
was five years, seven years ago. That's crazy. You know, he's the last guy to go sub 142, and then he does it again um, after seven years. And I guess he was another young phenom when he last did it, and everyone sort of assumes, hey, you know, these quick times are going to keep coming. But it just shows how hard it is to run that fast. So you got to strike when the iron's hot. But he's looking very good since joining. I mean, he's never really tailed off, but I think Mark Rowland's got him firing in all cylinders. I guess the question now is, are these same guys firing not two months from now? It's over two months from now. I mean, Worlds are, what, 10 weeks from now, probably. It's sort of crazy how late in the season it is. And, you know, we have a Diamond League this week, and then we don't have a Diamond League for a month. And then after that, Worlds are still over a month away. It's just crazy. Yeah, it's interesting about Amos because he's run well since running 141 in London in 2012. He has had a few down years, maybe. 2013, he didn't really do much, but he entered 2015 Worlds as the favorite and didn't even make the final. 2017, the World Championship final, once Korea went out in the semis, we kind of assumed, okay, this race is... Amos is to lose. He didn't even get a medal. He didn't make the final at Rio 2016. I mean, his championship record is just very, very poor. And I think the question now is he's clearly very fit. And if you can just run 141 and run away from everyone, I mean, I think they're very, maybe Korea, if he gets to his best, can run 141. But I don't think even Donovan Brazier could manage 141. Like, clearly he's very, very fit. But does that translate to a medal or a gold medal in Doha? especially since there's two plus months to go. It's, it's very hard to say. We were talking about tactics and whether Chariot could do it without a rabbit. I think it's actually probably the 800 guys might need to practice more. I mean, Chariot, if it goes out, just I feel like a 1500 is always going to go out around 60 at least without a rabbit. And then you've got, even it's slow, you know, sort of the next lap, you can ramp it up yourself for about 800. And no, not let it come down to it all out 400 whereas the 800 these guys are used to the rabbits sort of dragging them all out and you know radish has gone wire wire to wire before but every time amos has run 141 he said someone in front of him and i think for him like as you said he's gone into worlds as a favorite before and didn't make the final and the hardest final to make a world is the 800 meters because it's, it's ruthless there's no time qualifiers um so I think it would behoove him to do a couple races without a rabbit or at the very least, yeah, practice setting the pace yourself because that's going to be the big question mark for him. You know, how does he do good do when he goes into worlds as the favorite without a rabbit? Cause at this one, he had his teammate, Harun Namda setting up, you know, a pretty much perfect pace and they were just going after a fast time from the beginning. It was clear. And that's very different from a championship race. Yeah. And Harun Namda, shout out to him. He helped, Rabbit, Kajelcha's indoor world record. He's developing into one of the top rabbits in the world. Very reliable pacemaker. And one other thing on Amos. So earlier this week, actually yesterday on Tuesday, he ran 44.99 for 400 meters in Padua, Italy. And according to John Mulkeen, a statistician, he is the first man in history to have run under 45 seconds in the 400 and under 142 in the 800. Now, I'm certain David Radisha could have joined this club had he run more 400s in his career, but that shows you just how serious his speed is. Okay, guys. Speaking of the 800 in Monaco, the women's side, Ajay Wilson got the win, sort of as expected. Natoya Gould, though, challenged her much more than I would have thought. She, she hasn't been running well this year at all, and then all of a sudden she was right there with her. But here's the question for you guys. Who's more likely to be the world champion at the end of the year? Nigel Amos or Ajay Wilson? That's a great question, Weldon, because obviously there's a very big question mark hanging over the women's event. Okay, ignoring ignoring that. No Castro Semenya, no Francine Nianzaba. They're not in the race. Oh, ignoring that? Then yeah. uh, I would say Wilson because I think she's proven she can get through the rounds and hold people off. And the only people who have really beaten her Gould beat her in Monaco last year, but apart from that, she's essentially been unbeatable by anyone who's not XYDSD. So I would go with Wilson, whereas Amos, I just have more questions about his tactical ability and his ability to maneuver through the rounds. So for me, it, it would be Wilson, but the Semenya thing is obviously uh, 
still unsettled. Yeah, I think John's right on that. I mean, you have to go with Wilson. I just don't think that the women's 800 ignoring the XYDSD women is nearly as, as deep or as competitive as the men. I mean, if you're looking at the world list for, for 2019, I mean, you've got Wilson, again, we're ignoring the XYDSD. Wilson's first, 157.73, then Gould, 157.90. Then the next best woman in the world is someone who doesn't even run the 800. Laura Moore, 158.42. Then you've got you know Raven Rogers, Hannah Green, Lindsay Sharp. Um, you know, the, the first African woman is Nellie Jip Coast guys run 159 flat. So Wilson's more than a second ahead, uh, you know, uh, of that. So that, that's a pretty significant gap. Whereas, you know, in the men, even looking at his 150, 141, I mean, you still got even as good as 141.89 is Ferguson Chariot is only, you know, three tenths of a second or, or, or three quarters of a second away from that at 142.5. So I, I think that the answer would be Wilson. But again, 800 is something I'm never very truly confident in. I think it's tactics play a big part and it should be a really interesting race, you know, at Worlds. I, I think we should talk a little bit about the sprints there. I mean, did anyone believe going into that race that Justin Gatlin was going to beat Noah Lyles? I certainly didn't. I didn't think he would beat him, but it doesn't surprise me. Gatlin is infinitely more experienced in the 100 than Lyles is. Obviously, Lyles is incredibly talented and has run 986 this year. But if you told me Justin Gatlin was going to win that race in 991, I would have been surprised because I thought Lyles would win and I thought that the winning time would be faster. And obviously now Lyles has fully committed to just doing the 200 at USA's and Worlds. I... I, I mean, as a fan, I want to see him run both, but I totally understand it. He wants to make sure he gets the gold. And also, we've seen people do this before. I mean, tw- 2017, Wade Van Niekirk ran the 400-200 double at Worlds. Everyone kind of assumed he would just win the 200 after winning the 400. It will be no problem. He gets beat by Raul Guliev. There's, it's, it's not just a given that if you run three rounds of one event and then come through, you're going to win your specialty, even though Lyles would be a heavy, heavy favorite at 200 meters. So I don't totally fold him, and I'm glad we're still going to see Lyles Coleman in the 200, and we're still going to see Lyles doing the 100-200 double next year in Tokyo. Lyles Coleman? What about Lyles Norman? I mean, Norman beat him at 200. Is the 200-400 double even possible? I haven't looked at it, but Coleman, that's not something Norman's doing. I don't... I haven't looked at the schedule specifically, but I would be shocked if Norman tried that. No, we need to mandate it. If I was commissioner of the sport, I would mandate next year for the Olympics that Lyles try the 100-200 double. The 200 is run second. Norman tries the 400-200 double. That runs second. Then it's an even race. They're both tired, and they they, they clash you know, in the 200. Um, but – so Lyles has now said after the race he's just going to stick to his plan of running the 200. John, I don't like that. He says he may double next year. I don't like the idea of doubling for the first time at the Olympic trials. It makes me a little bit nervous, but I'd be excited to see him in both events. What I would like to see is what – I know we talked about off-air. I don't know if we ever talked about it on the podcast. I would like to see the ballsy strategy. Noah Lyles run only the 100 at USA's this world. He needs to practice his 100, get used to it. There would be doubt about that race. He runs the 100. And then he gets into the 200 on Worlds based on assuming the fact that he's going to win the Diamond League 200. People say, oh, that's risky. It's not any more risky, I don't think, than him winning the Diamond League 200. is not any more risky than him having to get through the rounds of USAs and not pulling a hamstring or something like that. Yeah, but you don't know how healthy he's going to be at the end of August. You know, he might be not 100% or something might come up. And also, he's not – this is a moot point. The entries have, are out at USA's, and Lyle's was scratched from the 100, so he couldn't run it at this point, if he, even if he wanted to. Well, well, I mean, just because there's published rules from USATF doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to follow those rules. And, folks, we have an update. We haven't really highlighted this much, but is it tonight or is it tomorrow, Weldon? Little Let's Run going up against USATF in the court of law in orbit, with an arbitrator. We have funded an appeal of the Pan Am's team, or we are on, potentially on the hook funding appeal there's been a second arbitration hearing uh scheduled with david guy finger representing the athletes and a number of athletes have contacted us saying they deserve to be on the team based on the 2019 marks and david guy finger has filed an appeal on their behalf 
The appeal costs $2,000. Our lawyer, Mr. Dreifinger, is confident that if we win the appeal, we will not have to pay and USATF may be forced to pay. So that'll be interesting. Well, then you're the money man. Please tell us what this means. Well, first of all, I wouldn't say we're going up against USATF. Um, essentially, we reached out to David Greifinger. We reached out to someone and said, hey, can someone represent these people? In my mind, we're just standing up for athletes who are deprived of their right to compete at the Pan Am Games. This is special for me personally. Pan Am Games is one of two international teams I made. It's sort of an afterthought for a lot of athletes. But if you made the team by the stated rules, you should get to compete. And it's very clear USATF is not following its stated rules. So once we heard athletes could appeal, we sort of reached out and said, hey, you know, we want a lawyer who will handle this for us. David reached out and said, I'll file it. I'm already filing some appeals. And we said, what does this cost? We don't think the athletes should pay. And he said $2,000. And hopefully you can get that money back. So and other people, some Let's Run fans have reached out saying they want to support the cause um, and chip in. Because I think the whole community is sort of behind this, just sort of standing up for athlete rights and fair rules that are the same for everyone. And instead, th- th- that hasn't happened. So hopefully we find out that these people are put on the team or at least a consistent set of rules are in place for the Pan Am Games. I think that should do it for Monaco. Since John tried to embarrass me at the beginning of the podcast, I'll now return the favor. Tried to. I think I successfully embarrassed you, Robert. You were not embarrassed? Well, the Jonathan Galt, folks, we have some bad news to report. The Jonathan Galt jinx has, has struck. Just days after Jonathan Galt had an exclusive interview with Evan Jager, saying Jager was going to attempt to win his eighth straight USA steeplechase title on just 40 days of running. We've learned, actually, thanks to Jonathan's own reporting, so he's not afraid to report stuff that ends up, you know, sort of dinging his reputation. Jager has not entered USA's. I guess the interview that he gave you last week was fake news, John. But Jager, a number of big names, John. Let's go through the names of the people who are not running USA's. Okay, we've got Evan Jager, who is the defending Olympic silver medalist, world championship bronze medalist. We've got Robbie Andrews, 2017 USA champion in the 1500 meters. We've got Eric Jenkins, who made the 5,000 team in 2017. We've got Ryan Hill, who also made the 5,000 meter team in 2017. We've got Brenda Martinez. She's a former world championship medalist and 2016 Olympian. Sean McGordy, NCAA champion in the 5,000 meters last year. There may be more. Those are the ones that I've noticed so far. Uh, John, do we have any Battleman Track Club men running the race, or can we just say all, all BTC men are out? Of- no, no, you're forgetting the, the reigning Olympic champion, Matthew Centrowitz. He has entered in the 1500. We've got Grant Fisher and Lopez Lemong, reigning champ in the 10K. He's running. So Bauman has taken some hits for sure with Jager and McGordy and Ryan Hill all not running, but they've still, they're still going to get some guys on this team to Doha. So it's like the imports are running? You know, they got to import new athletes? I guess Lopez has been on the team for a while. Lopez has been around. So it's like the true veteran, you know, the guy who can like survive anything getting out of Sudan and all of that stuff. I mean, like a true inspirational story who somehow won a USA. It's won a USATF mile and 10 K title. Of course he's going to be running, but everyone else is out except for the new imports. Well, and Jager not running the steeplechase opens the door for a former Bowman track club athlete, Andy Bayer, who has been the bridesmaid to end all bridesmaids recently. He was fourth in 2015. He was fourth in 2016. He was fourth in 2017. He was third last year in the steeplechase, but there was no team to make apart from NACAX. And he was also fourth in the Olympic trials, 1500 in 2012. Now he's the third fastest guy in the country this year. He's 10 seconds faster than number four. He's at 816. Jordan Mann's at 826. Is this finally the year Andy Bayer gets to run at a global championship? I sure hope so. I mean, 10 seconds is a lot. I mean, an 807 guy, you know, a four-minute miler doesn't worry about a 410 miler. I guess this is twice the distance. So, you know, does a 9-flat two-miler worry about a 910 two-miler? Not normally. So let's let's keep our fingers crossed, you know, on that front. But how, guys, how disappointing is this for Jager? I was first of all, I was really excited to see him sort of vulnerable at USA's. It was going to be exciting, and then if he made the team, it was going to be one of the biggest storylines of the summer because it seems like the steeples sort of there for the taking. And now the question I have is, guys, a number of years ago, when did he fall and run eight flat or eight oh one or whatever it was? Exactly. I want to play some audio. Perfect timing, Robert. 
Here we go. Are we going to ever see that A flat? Five years ago. Four years ago. July 4th, July 4th, 2015, Paris. I remember where I was for this. IWF moment of the year. And this crowd here in the Stade de France appreciate what they're seeing because Evan Jager is surely running for a sub eight minute clocking here. Oh, the coach is, he's gone down. Oh. Jager, get up. Concentrate. Oh. Move. Keep going. Bilek's heading for the line. He's going to take this. He cleared it well. I cannot believe it. Jago crosses the line, they're just outside eight minutes, surely. What an utter, utter disaster when 99.9% of the job was done for Evan Jago. Amazing call by Tim Hutchings. Was there some music on that call? I heard a little piano in the background. Yeah, that was from the IWF moment of the year. So they, you know, put a little dramatic music in the background. I'm sure I could find the original call if you guys want that instead. But... I mean, that gives me goosebumps every time. I mean, he was going to crush eight minutes. He would have been pretty close. I mean, obviously a few seconds off of the world record, but as close as I've ever seen anyone come in the last decade, I think. And everyone just sort of assumed, okay, well, he'll get under eight soon. Hasn't happened. And I think this just should be a shout out to anyone in the sport, even young Jacob Ingeritsen. You got to strike when the iron's hot. There's no guarantee about tomorrow. I mean, in life in general, this is probably good advice, but you don't know where you're going to be two years from now at Worlds. You could be hurt next year at the Olympics, whatever. So you got to do it when the iron's hot. That's a good thing and advice for Jacob and how much faster you're going to run. I mean, the, the reality is Jager ran 806 in 2012. Here we are seven years later. His PR is 85.45. So he's come down, you know, six seconds in seven years. So, you know, in the 1500, cut that in two, three seconds. I mean, you know, maybe Jacob runs 327. Maybe he runs 328, but there's no guarantees. And now the question with Jager, I mean, next year's Olympic year. You know, those BTC guys don't like to race very often. He's probably not going to be focused on time. And so he may not get it next year. And then he's going to be a year older the year after that. And we're going to have a world championship in 2021. And, you know, this thing, here's a question I have. I mean, I'm not saying he hasn't been at a really high level, 804, 805, 804, 801, 801. And normally you don't make big breakthroughs late in your career, but should he change it up? Should he find a new coach? I love Jerry. Jerry's one of my favorite coaches, but I'm just saying like, I really think when you get a new coach, there's an impetus, there's a changing in stimulus. And no, even if that coach is bad, normally the first year, you honestly will probably run better because run faster oftentimes because you're just hitting a different system. And it would be a huge risk in the Olympic year. So I probably wouldn't do it because it seems like he's a lock for a medal if he gets back to his old form um, because there aren't the steeples not as deep as some of these other events. But not a crazy question, Jager. Fire Bear Jerry in 2021. After you win Olympic gold next year. My initial reaction, Robert, is that's ludicrous because Jerry Schumacher, obviously one of the best countries, coaches in the country. Jager's had a ton of success about him, with him. But then I think back, Emma Coburn. 2016 Olympics, she gets the bronze medal. Everyone thinks, all right, she's doing great with Mark Wetmore. This is going really well. End of that year, she dumps Wetmore for Joe Bossard, her fiance turned husband, wins the world title in her first year uh, with Joe as her coach. So there is some precedent here. If I were Jager, I would not leave. I think that Jerry basically got him. It's very hard to get to that just the level he's at, which is the best steeplechaser in U.S. history by a mile, one of the best in the world year in, year out. And like, look, essentially, it comes down to like, how are you going to beat Concesla Skiprudo? Because he's the guy who's been dominating the event for the last couple of years. And I think the basic fact is just Kiprudo has one of the best kicks ever in that event. And if you're Jager, you just think changing a new coach is going to get him to be able to outkick Kiprudo, who has like. 22 point speed in the 200 and it's just this ridiculous close. I mean, that, that's just something I don't know if any coach can really solve that issue. And that's the one that Jager is confronted by. No, it's the same problem everybody had when Kimboy was dominating the event. And actually, looking ahead to next year, I think the injury, oftentimes when you come back from an injury, I mean, Rupp has said this, it's a good thing. He's not going to take for granted. He's going to be super motivated. It's an Olympic year. So maybe he could do it both, you know, win, go, go sub eight and win Olympic gold. That, that I certainly think it's possible, but I, I, I think in general, a lot of people view it as a failure or when a coach leaves, Hey, most relationships don't last forever. You know, it, it's hard to keep th- everything for going. People like variety that they, they break it up. 
So, I mean, you don't have the same coach through high school, college, pros. There's nothing wrong with changing groups just for changing it up. I mean, you get married or whatever, you want to move to a different city. So, yeah, but I, I just don't see it happening. Remember, Jerry Schumacher, Evan Jager dropped out of Wisconsin and moved, you know, moved to Portland to follow Jerry Schumacher and turn pro. At the time, I think a lot of people questioned that decision. He ran one year at Wisconsin, which was fine, but nothing indicating this huge ability. He, Jerry's been his guy for the last decade plus. I just find it very hard for him to even consider leaving that group. Especially Pascal Dobert, they have a close relationship as well. The uh, this you know assistant coach at Bowman. I mean, if any of Jerry gets guys ever left, they all seem to retire. Not that Jager's about to retire, but I don't think he'll leave. But I'm wondering if this could be. I assume he's not going to race this year. If he's skipping USA's, if not, maybe we should put on the first Let's Run dot com steeplechase in like September. Oh, let's do it. You can go sub eight there. I mean, seriously, why not? We can crowd find some some money or some stream it or something. No, let's do it in the winter. <laughs> Where are you going to do a steeplechase in the winter? Like Miami or something. Like a hundred grand. Oh yeah. Instead of indoor track. That'd be kind of cool. Hundred grand if you go sub eight. Let's go with Tom Radcliffe. We can do it. It's an exciting thing. But if I, I'm wondering if he doesn't leave, if he misses this entire year. He sounded very motivated with you, John, just with the cross training and just have a shot at training. If maybe this just makes him super hungry last year and appreciate the opportunity he has and go crazy. And I think as athletes get older in their, in their career, they need some sort of new stimulus. And not, none of Jerry's athletes have shown that they'll leave the coach. So maybe this is it, a serious injury. If you can come back from that, it's a stimulus he needs or just change the stuff up. I, I don't know. I mean, like Roger Clemens, John, when he left the Red Sox, essentially got cut by the Red Sox. Then he became a much better pitcher going to the Blue Jays. That sort of stuff. People thought his career was over and he probably went on another like 10 years. Now, obviously not, not a perfect analogy because at some point I think steroids entered the equation. I mean, not a perfect hopefully they're analogy. not in, they're not in this equation. So, but I forgot, guys, listening to that Jager bit, we, we heard the Tim Hutchings call. It was one of my favorite calls of Tim. We didn't play the Tim Hitchings call at the beginning of the program when we started with the women's mile record because he's on their national feed. Their feed wasn't as good. He didn't really, even with 200 meters left, I think he said, I don't think she can get the world record. In contrast to the guys at NBC, uh, Swangard and Cox, who were talking about it you know, with a lap to go. Um, John, w- when you're watching at home, we have access both, obviously, to the Olympic Channel, NBC Sports, and NBC Gold. Basically, Olympic Channel, NBC Sports, or Gold. Which broadcast do you watch and why? I watch NBC Sports Gold. The main reason is just to get screenshots uh, if something crazy happens that we've got documentation. And also, they show more of the field events. There's no commercials. It's just a straight two-hour broadcast. So that's usually Tim Hutchings, Steve Cram, and sometimes... Chris Dennis, but Robert, you have a conspiracy theory here, and I'm I'm very interested to hear it. Can you explain the conspiracy theory? Well, I, I watch Gold. I have both on generally. I have a TV on that's on the Olympic Channel, and then Gold on my computer, and I kind of like that. And the, re- the one reason why I watch Gold, I'm with John. Which broadcasters do you prefer? It's interesting. I mean, I like all of the broadcasters. I'm like friendly with most of them, so I can't really like. I don't. I don't want to pick and choose between them. I mean, you told me off air, but I guess you're not willing to say it on here. Okay, <laughs> I, I just feel bad betraying people. I think they all do a fairly good job. I, I prefer. I prefer the international feed for most things. I prefer Otto Bolden in the sprints. So I'm getting real insight there. So it's weird, the distance races. But the main reason why I watch NBC Gold is it's this is my conspiracy theory. It's way ahead of the Olympic Channel. It's at least a minute ahead. So, it, you know, I'm watching it. And then if a world record happens, I can watch over and watch the other event. So on the NBC Gold thing, I'm watching it. They don't even see the world record coming because who saw it after a 208 first half mile? And then I switched to Gold. And then they're talking about the world record the entire last 300, most of the last lap. And I, I, I'm like, how much of a delay is there? Could they possibly know that the world record was already set? And remember last week, we also praised Josh Cox for seeing that Hagos was kicking a lap early. So with a minute, with a minute, or more than a minute delay, my question is, do they, are they somehow on Twitter knowing what's going to happen and then being informed about it? Because it would be a big advantage. 
I mean, it's totally possible. It's sort of interesting. I guess we could reach out and actually ask them. But yeah, it's sort of interesting because this week, Tim Hutchins, uh, it was one of, for a world record, it's probably one of his worst calls. He, you know, they underestimated it happening. And with the battle lap to go, I thought, oh, it's definitely possible. Just seeing what she had run, I thought it was possible. And, but they were just, you kind of have a paradigm in your mind and they weren't thinking about it. So then sort of like 50 meters ago, he kind of recovers. Whereas Josh Cox, you know, maybe with a minute delay, he was right on it from a lap to go. But in fairness, maybe he just had a, you know, it, it was good, good announcing because with a lap to go, I thought she might get the record myself. So, well, no, and, and I like it. He, he both last week and this week, Josh made bold predictions and John, there's nothing wrong with being wrong. I like people saying what they believe. Unlike you couching, you're not even saying who your favorite announcers are. Shame on you, John. All right, you know what? I'm going to come out. I'll address it, Robert. I like Hutchings and Cran better. I think they do a better job. I think nothing against Paul Swangard and Josh Cox. They do a good job as well. I prefer the Brits. That's what. I, that's that's where I land. It's because you're a British nationalist, you xenophobe. Yeah, well, John, the xenophobe has even gone to Jonathan Galt. So I was going to... I should have made fun of John at the beginning of the show. Compared Hassan's world record to the English cricket cup, like something that nobody cares about. Hey, there are millions of people in England who care about it. That's a typical American point of view right there. Just because you don't care about it, just because well, the sport John told play. me the Cricket World Cup was bigger news in England than the Wimbledon final. It was. But like, here's the thing. You guys make this big deal about winning the Women's World Cup in soccer when very few countries even care about women's soccer. Whereas in England... Again, very few countries care about cricket, but England's one of them, so they make a big deal about it when they win. Wow, that was one of the most sexist things I think I've ever heard out of John's mouth. Very few people care about women's soccer? No, that's not what I said. I said very few countries care about women's soccer, and that is not inaccurate, well then. But I would say there's more. There's only like five countries in the world that care about cricket. So I think way more countries care about women's soccer than cricket. I don't know. I, mean, I very don't know f- about that. At a high level with money? Well, then, recently, the European federations have been putting more money and interest into it. But for a long time, even England didn't care about women's soccer that much. Now it's becoming more popular. But cricket, there are probably about 10 countries in the world that really seriously care about cricket. Women's soccer, I mean, look at Thailand. Thailand made the World Cup and got embarrassed by the United States. And part of look, USA is really good. But part of it is because there just aren't that many countries who are putting resources into high-level women's soccer. I'm not saying that it's – I like watching the tournament. I thought it was great. But I think it would be fallacy to say, oh, there are tons of countries who really have invested in women's soccer before the last you know, few years or so. Agreed. But the Thai cricket team wouldn't be very good either. Fair point. Fair point. Speaking of Women's World Cup, you, you guys didn't ask me about the parade last week. Oh, I know. that I started to go there earlier. I said, the reason – glad that you could join us on the podcast because we didn't start with him because Weldon was – Gone last week, John, and the podcast went just well, just fine. I got lots of emails and tweets saying how great the podcast was without Weldon. Okay, <laughs> not really, but if you go to the uh, Apple Podcast review page, people are saying, I love to listen to the podcast and listen to Rojo tell us how great he is every week. There's no mention of Weldon, so I don't have that in front of me. But, um, Weldon, how was the, how was the parade? You obviously – Impressed by Megan's Rapinoe's speech, which you wrote about on the message board. But Rapino, can we pronounce her name correctly, Robert? She did just win the World Cup and the Golden Bull and the Golden Boot. Can we at least pronounce her last name right? Rapino. Thank you. So I, I rushed down there, and right when I get there, like this double-decker bus or maybe a tractor trailer or something's going by, and I'm like, oh, shit, I don't think any players are on it. But in rev- and then I saw some other people coming, like maybe three or four more sort of float looking things. And I'm like, okay, where's like the famous players? And I figured they'd be in like white uniforms. Then I w- reviewed my photos. So I thought I missed all the players and just thought, saw like the hangers on from like Volkswagen and the sponsors of the thing. They get to go in the parade as well. But then in one of my photos, I saw it was clear that Governor Cuomo was in there and he was on a parade with floats. So I did at least see a few players. Then I bought a, I assume a knockoff T-shirt, Women's World Cup T-shirt for ten bucks on the street, and got back home. So for me, it was a success. Came home, turned it on, saw Megan Rapino give her a little spiel. I was really impressed with it, and to say I, I'm a fan of hers beforehand would be a, a lie essentially. 
but her words were very uplifting. It's like, it's time for us to come together, blah, blah, blah. And the question for me was, would be whether she, essentially to me, that means let's put everything behind. Let's go as a team, go to the white house. But I guess that didn't turn out how, how I thought it would, but I thought it was interesting. Cause I posted this thread essentially saying, look, I love her uplifting words that she gave at this speech and America's just so divided. People cannot, a lot of people don't like the fact she doesn't, you know, stand for the national anthem. And they just blasted her. They're like, that, whatever, hypocrite. And you can dislike some actions that someone else did and still like their words and find a speech very promising. And that's what personally I liked. But hey. All right. So that was our soccer international sports detour of the week. Uh, we still got some more track and field to talk about, though. London Diamond League coming up this weekend. Bunch of pretty good events. It's not Monaco. It's the week before USA's. A lot of Americans are skipping it, especially I don't think any American distance runners are running it. But there's a pretty interesting 5K. Ronex Kiprudo is running his first ever 5,000 meter race, track or roads. Got a bunch of Aussies in there. It's it's kind of weird. I was talking to some agents and they're not really sure how Australia is going to pick their team still because... They had a trials in they had a, the Australian Championships were back in February, which was won by Jordan Guzman. Now Jordan Guzman says he wants to run for Malta, the World Championships. Not sure how that process has gone, but you've got Morgan McDonald, you've got Sam McEntee, you've got Stuart McSwain, Brett Robinson, Patrick Tiernan are all in there. Hugo Skebrowitz in there. Jakob Jacob, sorry, Jakob Ingebrigtsen is running the five k. And he's never really gotten a fast one because his PR is 13-17 from the European Championship final last year. So I think that's going to be interesting. Does Kip Rudo just try to go out from the front and drop everyone or does it turn into a real tactical race? Wait, he wants to run for Malta? Yes. Why? Is he Maltese? I assume he has some sort of Maltese roots. I don't know why, but I did read an article in the Times of Malta. He competed for Malta at the Games of the Small States of Europe. So I don't know if his thing has actually gone through with the IAAF or if he's going to be able to run at Worlds, but apparently the Australian champion in the 5,000 meters wants to run for Malta. And not Australia. And not Australia. We need to look into that. But I was a little distracted, to be honest, John. I haven't been listening to what you're talking about. Something about London. I'm a little upset with London. Do we really want to have to work both days this weekend? I have a young family. About some meat. Only a few people are going to be at. I've got breaking news. and I've been watching the Ethiopian 10,000 meter trials live as we speak, folks. I don't know if you knew guys, guys knew they were going on. The women's race is over. As we're being recorded, we need to get off this podcast so I can watch the end. Letzanet Gede is one in 30-37. Netzanet Gudita Second and thirty forty, and Sinbera Teferi third and thirty forty five. So fourth place to thirty forty six. So that has happened. The men's race is going on right now. It's I've got we've got we were linking to the message board, which has a link to the Facebook live stream. Some guy is just standing trackside with a camera. And folks, we love the ten thousand. Let's run loves the ten thousand. But this is depressing to me. Guess how many people are watching this live feed? Like we have a link to it on our website, which has you know, approaching 100 million page views a year. Guess how many people it says according to Facebook. Can this be right or watching this right now worldwide? 27. Some guy's just holding up a phone and nobody knows about this? Yeah, like 30 people, some thread that I didn't even know existed. I just sent out a tweet. Oh, I missed the mile. 87 people. Six minutes, folks. Six minutes. That must be like five and a half laps. I mean, we get up to a million and a half unique visitors a month, but those people aren't all on there at one point, you know? In a day, you're going to have like 50,000. In any moment, probably, I don't know, for sure under 1,000. So how many people are going to click through beyond some thread right now on the boards seeing, oh, a free live stream of someone holding up their phone and watching it? Well, we're up to 90 now because I've just pulled it up on my computer. So boosting the viewers by at least one. All right, how we, help me figure out the projected time. They just hit 6.30. I don't know if he's standing in the 200 Great podcasting mark. here, guys, really. We're, we're uh, trying to figure out splits for a race that will have happened already by the time you listen to this. I think we should uh, pivot away from this, Robert, and maybe get back to some stuff that hasn't happened yet. I, I, I'm just upset. We're not, we're not recording at our normal time because Walden had to come back from his vacation. So I could be watching this race live, geeking out about it. 
But I have boosted the viewership numbers to 91 with you two joining Frey. No, I have not joined. I can't even find the link. So that's the problem. Like you said, this thread, there's no link in the thread. How am I supposed to know about this thing? There's a link in the thread. I think it could be a problem, though. Robert, you're saying we're not recording at our normal time. I was told that at our normal time of recording this morning, you were actually taking a nap. Yeah, when you're a family man and get up at 545, sometimes you're tired by eight and need to take a two to three hour nap like a baby does. So fortunately, slept through my arm, woke up around noon. <laughs> Wait, so how long was your nap? You're going to throw off your whole sleep schedule. I've been operating about five or six hours a night for several weeks, so it's not going to impact me. Okay. Yeah, that's tough. I uh, Shout out to all the parents out there with young children. I could not operate on five to six hours a night. Let's let's change subjects. Thread of the week, how about? And I think these are both sort of relevant. They're actually Nike's going to be very happy with the thread of the week because the top two threads of the last week are closely related. Sifan Hassan ran her world record in cheater spikes. Does it count? And the number two thread is Saucony's Jared Ward publishes scientific paper showing that Nike four percent shoes really do work. So both things related to shoe developments. And the bigger question of the IWF has a rule that prototypes should not be allowed, yet the rule doesn't seem to be enforced. And I think we've been pretty consistent. Let's run.com first and foremost. I feel like we we stand for fair sport. We've come out against um, intersex athletes competing in the female category. We've come out against people running with blades competing against able-bodied athletes. Um there's other sort of areas we're very strongly anti-doping. And also I don't want someone winning a sh- race because they have a shoe that somebody else doesn't have. Right. So she may have essentially run her, her mile world record and sort of 4% spikes. I think the rule just needs to be more clear. And because at the Rio Olympics, no, people no. ran in shoes. This rule did not exist at the Rio Olympics, but people ran in shoes that no one else had access to. So I don't want someone winning because of that. And the rule needs to be, if the shoe is not available for six months, commercially available before the thing cannot be worn, and it needs to be enforced, and then that'll be that. You know, people just—I guess at some point you have to disqualify one person or take away one record or just make the make it known in advance. If you wear a shoe that's not commercially available, the record will not count. Let me interrupt here. That was a long, drawn-out way of since John and I are the ones that have done a lot of research on this. Um, first of all, I've reached out to the IWF about this. We should have some clarification soon. So look for that article on let'srun.com. But let me read the rule, IWF rule 143.2. Athletes may complete barefoot or with footwear on one or both feet. The purpose of shoes for competition is to give protection and stability to the feet and a firm grip on the ground. Such shoes, however, must not be constructed so as to give athletes any unfair assistance or advantage. Any type of shoe must be reasonably available to all in the spirit of of the university of athletics. I think the rule has always been that way. The last sentence was added a few years ago. So, well then prototypes, my, John's I, John and I's understanding of the rule and, and discussing it with people on the message board is prototypes are allowed. Like you can give someone a special upper to, to help their, you know, if they have a wide foot or something like that. Um, that's not a problem. It's more about the type of shoe. So Jared Ward ran Boston in a shoe for Saucony that doesn't exist. My argument is I believe that shoe would be allowed because he's just trying to replicate the 4% shoe from Nike, which has a carbon plate, which did, which, you know, is the type of shoe that exists. We're looking for clarification about that. But to me, yes. Well, then I agree with you. No one else in the world has a spike with a fiber carbon plate in it, carbon plate in it. So that's an unfair advantage. I can't believe I didn't bring up this topic at the beginning of the show when we were talking about whether there would be a world record or not. I mean, I have doubts about all of this stuff. This 201 marathon, is that really any better than the 203 that Gab ran back in the day? I don't know. And I think it's clear that people are wearing shoes constructed to give athletes what says unfair assistance or advantage. So what is unfair assistance or advantage? I mean, you're right. Well, that, that rule is not really that clear because it says the purpose of shoes for competition is to get protection and stability to the feet. That's part one. Well, I would argue that none of these shoes are designed for that. They're designed to have people run faster. But it says unfair advantage or assistance. Robert, I just want to say I don't think that I don't think we're in agreement that prototypes are legal. It depends on the prototype. I mean, 
the rate the shoes that Rupp and Kipchoge and Fiesa Lalisa ran at in at the 2016 Olympics, those were prototypes, but those were prototypes of a shoe we'd never seen before. Now that last line saying that any type of shoe must be reasonably available to all was not in place at the time. So it wasn't like they did anything wrong. But I think if that was the case, it, it, you point out with this new shoe where we haven't seen, they're very like, it seems like there's a lot of foam or a lot of extra foam in Hassan spikes. Those ones seem to be a prototype and they're not available to all. Okay, John, but uh, first of all, yeah, prototypes might be allowed if that if a similar shoe exists is what I'm saying. I'm saying that might be the case. Right, That's right. I'm, the way I'm reading it. Might be. Might be. But if you, but I would argue, no, that they in 2016, we, we didn't really get in this, but shoes must not be constructed just to give athletes any unfair assistance or advantage. I think that they definitely had an unfair advantage certainly unfair advantage. It says unfair assistance or advantage. I think they had unfair. Yes. Advantage in 2016 that no one else had. Well, other people didn't have it. The Nike athletes. So I don't know. I, this isn't a Nike bash testing. This is a fact. I mean, their shoes were better than else. So they add in the thing that must be reasonable. I agree. Like, and I, when I've written them in my email, I specifically said, like, if you come out with the shoe and put it online on Saturday and the Olympic marathon is Sunday, is that considered to be reasonably advantage? It's not. In my opinion, and I, I think Nike might actually want this because they know about this rule, and yet Laura Moore ran in a similar spike indoors when she set her British record, and, and now it's on. I think Nike may just – I don't know if they're just purposely trying to get a DQ because it would be great marketing publicity for them. I mean, it would be amazing. Like, does anyone really care who has the mile world record when the 1500 world record is better? So – I don't know, but I agree with Weldon. They need to enforce this rule. I think a DQ is warranted in this case. Well, I'm going to disagree with you on the 2016 thing, Robert. I don't look if then those shoes have been on the market, the Vaporflies, for several years now. They have not been banned for cons- constructing an unfair assistance or advantage. I think look, just because they were a better shoe, this IAF has ruled they're within the rules that they don't constitute an unfair assistance or advantage. I don't think you could just say just because it was a better shoe relative to another one, like. You can't just say, oh, Kipchoge's wearing, you know, racing spikes and someone else is racing in clogs. Does Kipchoge have an, un- does that make it unfair just because they're better than the competitor? I, d- I don't think so. I think it's unfair if the IAAF says no one is allowed to compete in these. Well, right. They need to, the, the rule, rule should have been clear in 2016. So I probably wouldn't retroactively DQ them. But the, read the first, the second sentence of the rule the purpose of shoes for competition is to give protection and stability to the feet and a firm grip on the ground. So I don't think that's the argument. Is is that the, the purpose of the construction of a carbon fiber plate where you have a huge heel lift? I, I, I don't think that's the purpose of that shoe. The purpose of that shoe is to help you propel you forward and faster than, than normal. John, so you're saying if let's say somebody comes out with a new shoe before the Tokyo Olympics and it's got rollers on the bottom or some new spring thing, no one else has it. One, let's say poker comes out with it and jim walmsley wins the olympic marathon you think he should be allowed to be the olympic champion because he won because of this shoe i never said that look if there are rollers on it the iaaf would say they're giving unfair assistance or advantage let's say they have a better foam they find a better foam it's a better four percent it's got a new angle but it's not available they keep it secret he's the only one allowed to it he wins the olympics trials and then the olympic marathon and no one else has access to it. And then afterwards, other companies copy it. You think that should be allowed? Well, he'd still, well, according to the IAAF rule, he's violating any type of shoe must be reasonable available to all. So no, I, d- I don't think that should be allowed, but he's not violating the shoes inherently aren't unfair unless the IAAF deems that these shoes are unfair. It's about right now you're talking about a gap between who has the shoes and who's, who doesn't have the shoes, not about the shoes themselves being inherently unfair. Right. Uh, need to be available to all. And that those shoes wouldn't be available to all. So they need to start enforcing this rule because how are we going to know what advantage the shoe has? Right. But sort of new design prototypes, not just some sort of like, oh, give someone a custom upper or some st- something like that. But if it's a new technology, it needs to be out there commercially for, say, six months. And then people can decide if they want to use it or not. I think that's fair. If you have a rule, what's the point of the rule if you're not going to enforce it? I agree. John, thank you for stopping me from getting up the figuring out the pace of the Ethiopian 10,000 meter trials for the men. 
Um, all we had to do was wait a few minutes. They've hit 5K in 1331, so we're looking for a sub-27 clocking here. Right, let's talk a little bit. We, we talked earlier in the show about imports at some point. I forgot when. But let's talk about the latest addition, the latest import to the Nike Oregon Project, which was founded to bring back American distance running to the top of the world. Can someone pull up the well done, can you while I'm talking, can you please pull up the Wikipedia page for the American Project for the Nike Oregon Project and talk about their desire to, to set American bring American running back? But um, we have the NCA 1500 meter champion from last year and runner up this year, Jessica Hole of Australia has signed with the Nike Oregon project and people were very excited about this fans. There's fans. So it was both ways. I mean, it's like anything like a lot of people were excited to see her join such a prominent group, but also some, there were some critics because this group was founded to bring back American distance running. And yet now most of the athletes, at least the ones that Alberto Salazar coaches are foreign champions. Robert, I mean, yeah, okay, it was established to promote American distance running. I think you can say they mostly achieved that goal. They got Olympic medals for Galen Rupp. They got the Olympic champion in the 1500 meters for Matthew Centrowitz. They've had success with other athletes at other distances. I I don't think, I don't see a mission statement. I don't know what their current mission statement is, but I don't think it's fair to just hold them accountable and say, okay, when they founded the group in 2001, this is the only goal and that you, now you can't change things. You can't add any other athletes from other countries if they don't want to. I think most of these groups in the United States have athletes from multiple countries. You look at Bauman Track Club, they've got Mohamed, they've got Mark Scott. You look at Oregon Track Club Elite, they have Nigel Amos, they've got Francine and Saba. I don't see anything wrong with other athletes from other countries coming over here. And yeah, okay, maybe it's not what they're, they were initially founded for, but how many companies were founded for one purpose only to start doing one a different thing? I mean, I don't think I don't think this is a big problem that one of the world's, a great young 1500 meter talent is now training in the United States. I don't think it's a problem. I just bring it out to, to talk about, when we. I think, again, we often give co- coaches so much more credit than they deserve. If, if, if I got to recruit 15 of the top talents in the world every you know, every five years, I think I can win a slew of Olympic medals with John Kellogg giving me the workouts easily. No doubt in my mind that that would happen. I mean, no one's on here. It, it's fascinating. People always talk about Salazar and Jerry and, and, you know, what amazing coaches, but no one, why don't we talk about Mark Rowland? Mark Rowland just coached a guy to 141. Why isn't he getting credit? Or if he coaches Francine Nansalbo to silver medal after silver medal, why doesn't he get credit for that? It's because, oh, well, they were already that good when he got them or, Oh, they're foreigners. We don't pay attention to it. But for some reason, with long distance runners, the coach gets the credit for developing them, and it just seems, uh, you know, a little bit weird to me. The reality is, if you don't have top notch talent, you can't can't get top notch results. Alberto learned that the hard way when he started with the Mike Donnellys and Chad Johnsons of the world. He had to upgrade the talent level. It's the same thing that I think that it's the same reason why you see a lot of young athletes get disillusioned with track. They're young. They're talented. They think they're good. They don't realize they're eventually going to hit their genetic potential. And when you're new to the sport, you don't realize everyone has a genetic potential. And then the longer you coach, and I would say it takes about five or six years of serious coaching. And I say that's about what it took for Alberto. It's the same thing I had at Cornell. You're like, oh my God, unless I upgrade the talent level, I'm never going to achieve what I want to achieve here. I understand the point that he once he's gotten better talent, he's become a much better coach. But at the same time, you take someone seventh in the world, there's no guarantee they become number one. And he did take a kid from his son's local high school and make him an Olympic bronze medalist and Olympic and Olympic silver medalist, actually two different events. So, I mean, Galen Rupp, I mean, he discovered him as a high school kid. So that one sort of shoots apart some of your argument, but yeah, Mark Rowland doesn't get credit for what he's doing. And, you know, we took a guy who was very good and now got him back to being very good again. So, you know, Sifan Hassan was already one of the top people in the world, but she wasn't a mile world record holder. Neither was Kajelcha. So I think it sort of shows with some focus, some very professional training, what these top athletes could do with a change in coaching. Yeah, the rut point you bring up is an interesting one, Weldon, because obviously Salazar found it when he was a teenager. All we say, and Rupp is one of arguably the one of the you know one of the best all-time american born distance talents are we going to say 
Salazar just, it was a dramatic coincidence that just happened to be based in Portland right when Salazar was getting into coaching the Oregon project, or we going to give Salazar credit for really guiding him along and making the right decision at almost every path, or are we going to give credit to something else? So it, it's an interesting discussion. It, it's very interesting. And I have thought about that. I mean, it's very amazing that Rupp has gotten that good, right? The one person he wanted more than anything. I mean, mm-hmm. someone, someone I said, oh, I said, Salazar is living his life through Rob. And someone's like, no, 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 you misunderstand. Salazar thinks he is Rob. Like that's his second chance. Um, and again, people are going to get annoyed when I relate my personal life to it. But like, look at Weldon and John Kellogg. Like they were together and they were, you know, that's probably the highest level that anyone coached through John Kellogg. Or my first athlete at Cornell, Bruce High, the guy that recruited me to take the job. He was my best athlete, All-American and cross-country right behind Ryan Hall. It's very weird how like sometimes the person you start off with um, – you know, it takes you to this level, but you can't sort of replicate it with other people and, and you've got to sort of recruit them. But, you know, the Oregon project, you got Pete Julian coaching a bunch of people and Salazar of the one Salazar coaches. I think he coaches Rupp, who's American. Does he coach Klosterhaven, John? I think that's Julian. I'm not a hundred percent sure. He coaches his son. Well, who's going to, we don't even know who's going to coach. He coaches Clayton Murphy. He coaches Jordan Hesay. They're both American. And Kajelcha. So maybe it's, could be even. He actually could have more Americans than foreigners. It is sort of interesting, though, because like when Faro was originally brought in, it was sort of like with the premise that he could help Rupp. But now, like, who's Hassan there to train with? Like a German, essentially. And same thing, maybe in Kajelcha. There's no like long distance guy on the male side. I guess you could like, maybe say Jenkins, but he's been hurt. So it's just sort of interesting that. But I think it's okay to, to change your goals and change the focus of something. I think they just say, look, we want to have the best in the world, period. I heard that, that Coco doesn't train with Hassan. So one of the reasons – I think actually I heard this last week. One of the reasons why they brought in the Australian is so that she could train with Klosterhaven. Well, he, here's the other thing, though. Why did these athletes join the Oregon Project, like Kajelcher and Klosterhaven? It's because they weren't happy with their coaching setups in their home country. They're Nike-sponsored athletes. They're some of Nike's best athletes. So they go out to Nike and say, hey – I need a new coach. Who do you guys know? And they're like, hey, we got this guy in Portland. He's coached a bunch of Olympic gold medalists. Like, go with him. And that's how they end up at Salazar. It's not like Salazar is out there trying to recruit every single guy, though I'm sure you know, he, he'd like to coach a lot of these big talents. It's these athletes aren't happy with the level they've been getting coached to, and they want to get they just want more consistent coaching. They know Nike has great resources, and they say, Hey, this is one of our top coaches. We'll put you with him. All right, guys. I have exciting breaking news. The Ethiopian 10,000 trials are over. I, I did not watch the end on the Facebook feed, so I'm assuming that these results, you know, they were kicking in them for the win and not just trying to get top three. But incredible performance by the LPDNs. Six guys break 27 flat. A seventh guy runs 27, all from Ethiopia. Eight Ethiopians run 27.02 or better. The winner of the race, Hagos G., he made his 10,000 debut earlier in the year, ran fantastic, did most of that work that was run by Ronix Caputo, ran 27.01 there. Today, in much better weather, runs 26.48.95, Borrega 26.49. And then the world record holder in the indoor mile gets the third position, presumably qualifies for Worlds at 26.49.99. John, what do you think about this race? I mean, how often has – look at that depth. Six guys under 26. 27 in the same race, all from the same country. Yeah, it's crazy. It's almost as good as a world championship final. Maybe you could say the depth could be even better than a world championship final. That third guy, by the way, Yomif Kajelcha, he does have a name, the the world indoor record holder in the mile. But I I still, my opinion, I still think, you've still got Ronex Kiprudo out there. You've still got Joshua Cheptegai. I think Cheptegai is the man to beat the world cross country champion from Uganda. I think he's the man to beat in the 10,000 at Worlds. But it's also, it just puts you in, into context sort of how unfair this, this is to some of these Ethiopians. So you've got Andamlik, sorry, Andamlik Belahu, sorry if I'm pronouncing your name wrong, 2653, uh, Jamal Yima, 2654, Abadi Hadiz, 2656, Berahanu Segu, 27 flat, Solomon Beruhu, 2702. None of those guys will probably get to run at Worlds because they're probably just going to go with the top three in Gebrowet, Berega, and Kajelcha. Yet Julian Wanders from Switzerland, who finished ninth place, well back of the top guys in 2717, still a big PR for him, a great run for Julian Wanders of Switzerland. 
he's going to get to run at Worlds because he has the standard, whereas Ethiopia can only send three. So incredibly high-quality race, probably the fastest 10,000 we'll see of the year. Yeah, I just counted up. Ten guys from Ethiopia at 27-23 or better. I mean, if you look at the all-time U.S. list, 10th all-time is Alberto Salazar at 27-25. So in one race here, Ethiopia has, has eclipsed the entirety of the United States of America in its history. Um, but to me, John, the big question are Weldon, Kajelcha, what event do you do? Salazar, I am assuming with his speed is like, you know, let's try him in the longer distances. He'll be like Mo Farah. He'll be unbeatable in, in, in these longer distances with his kick. Um, he'd run a 58 or 59 minute half marathon. He's got the indoor moral record holder, but he only gets third here. Do you do the five ten double? Do you try to do the five fifteen hundred double? What do you do if your Salazar coaching Kajelcha? Oh, it's easy. Five ten double. I mean, the five Ks first, which is his best event. So you run that, and then you run the ten thousand at the end. He's not going to do anything in the fifteen hundred. Come on, Robert. We saw in the Balvin Mile, he got his ass kicked in that race. Like, I know it was a bad race for him, but let's be realistic. I know he's the world record holder in the indoor mile, but I think he's best suited to the distances and. 5K, 10K is a very doable double. His best events first. That That's what he'll do in Doha. Why is the 10,000 second? Conspiracy, conspiracy theorists will think it's been set up to make the double easier for people like this. I mean, back when people always talk about Mo Farah having the most double gold. And I'm like, well, that's not really a fair comparison because when Haile G was running, he didn't try the 5,000 because you had to run heats of the 10,000. It just wasn't worth the trouble. So anyways, one interesting name for me, guys, looking all the way down the results. 15th place. And this is very exciting for me. Not going to make the team. Only ran in the 2740s. But Gaye Adola, the 203-46 marathoner from Berlin, the guy that was pushing Kipchoge to the limit in Berlin in 2017, hasn't done a whole lot recently since then. Ran 232 in the marathon last year in London. Had run a 60-17 half marathon in March to win in Rome. But um, only 61-44 in April. Good to see him healthy, guys, because I think when he – obviously, he's shown it in the past. When he's healthy, he's 203, 204. But enough Ethiopian 10,000-meter trials talk. Anything else we need to do today, Walden? No. We don't need deleted threads of the week. I think we can need to sign off and get ready for next week. USA National Championship. Do we have a sponsor, John? Is it the Toyota USAs? We got to give the sponsors their due. It is it's the Toyota USATF Outdoor Championships. Yeah, it looks like Weldon. You might need to give your dogs a walk right now. So, uh, you know, we'll we'll uh, bring this edition to a close unless there are any closing comments. Well, we didn't pump any of our own sponsors this week, folks. Go to the iTunes Store and, and give us a review. You can tell them this week that you love listening to Robert. Either be a genius or make a fool of himself. Either one is fine as long as you're listening. We don't really care. And also go to let'srun.com slash shoes. I said last week we had over 500 reviews. Over 1,000 reviews, folks. The response from Let's Run has been amazing. So now we're going to have, like, you can find the best running shoe. It's going to current, cover current shoes. And their shoe reviews are so detailed that you can find, like, the best shoe that people who overpronate like. The best shoe for people training for the marathon, what they like. You can find great deals on shoes, and you can review your own shoe. Check it out, let'srun.com slash shoes. And I think it's time to walk the dogs. Jonathan, Robert, till next week.